You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, in his book called Living on the Ragged Edge, Chuck Swindoll uses a really neat word picture that I think orients us to the subject of our sermon this morning. Now imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that a banker phones you and tells you that an anonymous donor who loves you very much has decided to deposit to you into a special account just for you, to deposit to you 86,400 pennies every day. You know what pennies are, right? We don't see too much of them anymore, but I got, I got a picture of them in my uh, slide, just in case you forgot. You know, you know those, oh yeah, those things, I've seen those kicking around. For our younger people, right, this is, we used to have a lot of these kicking around, uh, but that changed. So it's, it's, it's still worth something, though it's still worth one cent. And a banker says, somebody wants to give to you, deposit to an account just for you, 86,400 pennies every day. That's $864 a day. $6,084 a week, $315,000 per year, and it's all yours. There's just one stipulation. Like, of course, there's a stipulation. One stipulation. You must spend all the money that you're given on the same day that you're given it. So it's yours. But you can't carry a balance over to the next day. When the day comes, whatever you haven't spent that day is forfeited. It's canceled. There's there's no carry over. Now, if that was the offer, how many of you would be like, I'd take it? How many of you would be like, I'd take it? I'm not going to lie to you, I'd take it. There's a whole bunch of us kind of reluctant. Yeah, Yeah, I'm in. Look, you don't have to feel super spiritual. Like, yes, you're going to give that to me? I'll have to spend it in the same day. I'll figure it out, okay? Like, I'd be sitting down with my calculator and my pencil. And I'd call people who know math. Like, help me work this out so I can do this. That's a lot of money every single day. Unfortunately, of course, it's just fantasy land. It's just for pretend. But now let me bring it into reality. In real life, there is someone who loves you very much, who gives to you every day 86,400 seconds of time. 1,440 minutes, 24 hours every day. The same stipulation in real life applies to time. There's no carryover. Someone has said, from today's dawn until tomorrow's dawn, you have a precisely determined amount of time. There's no 26-hour day. It's 24 hours every day. And when life's over, life is not like a soccer match where there's often extra time. There's no extra time. You've got the time you're given. And when it's up, it's up. Someone else has said, life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's very sobering. The reality is, when you think about the subject of time, all of life is embedded in time. 
everything happens. Everything you do, everything that is done, everything that's done to you and for you, all of life happens in the course of time. So it's important, therefore, that we have a right perspective on the subject of time and that we spend it wisely. And it's perhaps for that reason, the significance of time, that Solomon, in his journal on making sense of life, he wrote an insightful passage and reflection on the topic of time. And I want you to see it because it's going to help us not only understand the importance of time, but I think will give us focus on its significance for our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is our text today. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 15. We're in our series we've just called Making Sense of Life. It's wisdom for the real world from Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is all about the real world. In some ways, it feels kind of raw in what we read in this passage because it's an eyes wide open look, not only a look at life, but also seeking to find perspective, godly perspective, putting in perspective what is and how to make sense of it. And in this journal, what's happened here is we've got our author, I believe is Solomon, who he seems to have gone on a journey away from God. Now having come back to God, he's writing down wisdom and insights that he has learned, things that he is seeing that he wants us to see. And when we come into chapter three, he turns his attention to this subject of, of time. And uh, we're going to see here that the passage in front of us is divided into three parts. First of all, verses one to eight, it's a poem that is really, I've just called it a survey of life's activities. So looking at all the things, different things that happens in the course of time, it's a survey of life's activities. We'll see he divides it into categories, actually into a series of contrasts in which he's thinking through all kinds of different activities that we do or that we experience in the course of time. So verses 1 to 8, we've got a survey of life's activities. Verses 9 and 10, we've got a contemplation of life's activities where he stands back and says, okay, so here's all of life. Now what? So what? What do we say about this? What do we make of this? And then in verses 11 to 15, we've got a description of God's activities in this world in the course of time. Let me begin by reading the poem. We're going to read, we'll start at verse 1, where the introduction, then verses 2 to 8 is this poem on time. He says in verse 1, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the sun. That word matters, or activities, or events. There's, there's things that happen, and there's a time for all these things to happen. Now here's his poem. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. 
A time to keep silence. Tricky knowing when that is sometimes, isn't it? A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. We've got here a survey of life's activities. His point, there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. Now, this, this poem here probably sounds familiar to you. You've, maybe you've heard it read at a funeral, maybe even at a wedding. If you're old enough, you remember the song by the birds, right? There is a season, turn, 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 right? You know that song? How many know that song, right? Oh, yeah, you know that song. We hear it all the time. That's right. And so that's a, it's a, a well-known, that's probably, probably in terms of like popular music, it's, it's probably a song that contains like the longest Bible quote uh, that you will find. It's certainly up there anyway. But long before the birds, though, Solomon wrote this poem to give us a, a cross-section of Life. You see, it's, it's a, a set of 14 different contrasts where he's thinking through all kinds of things that happen in the course of time, right? There's contrast. So he begins, there's a time to bore and a, a be born and a time to die. I mean, that's, that's you know, the, that's the, the whole of your life is encompassed in between those things. There's a time to plant, he says, and a time to pluck, right? There's a, there's a season for putting the seed in the ground, and there's a season for harvesting, for cultivating. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now, that's the real world, isn't it, right? There's the mafia and there's missionaries. We've got, we've got the whole gambit. There's a time to break down, right? There's a time to tear that thing down, right? We, just, we recently, there's a, an old shed in our yard. It's time for that thing to go, right? And now there's a time for a new one to be built up because we got stuff scattered all over our yard getting wet. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. No, that, that encompasses really the, the whole of human emotion from one pole to the other. A time to mourn and a time to dance, right? It's seldom appropriate to dance at a funeral, it's seldom appropriate to mourn at a wedding. There's, there's a time for these things, and there's a whole range of emotions, strong emotions, that we feel. There's a time to cast away stones and to gather, a time to embrace and refrain from embracing. That's the dynamics of human relationships, right? There are times when, no, it is not hug it out time. It's serious time here. There's things we need to address here. It says there's a time to seek and a time to lose, right? There's a, there's a time to pursue that dream, and there's a time to just let it go, let it go. The, the baseball career is not gonna happen, right? I'm talking about me. I always wanted to be a big league pitcher. I'm 43. That window, I think, is just about firmly shut. There's a time to tear and a time to sow, right? There's a time to repair that thing, and. To, to sew it together in the time that, you know what, just, just, just rip it up and turn it into rags. There's a time to keep silence and speak. As I said, one of the biggest challenges we face in our day-to-day -day lives is determining which is which. Is this the time when I should say something or not say something? To love and to hate. War and peace. There's times when maybe it's necessary. There's a time to stand down. Now, here's the thing. There isn't any of us, there isn't any of us who are somehow outside of this or beyond this. None of us can get around this, the fact that there is a season and time for all kinds of things in your life. And you can look down this series of contrasts and in certain ways can find 
times and seasons when you've experienced all of them in some fashion or another. It's your life. It is life in this world. In fact, when you think about it, while I say that none of us are exempt from this, even Jesus was not exempt from this. Think about the life of Christ. Jesus knew these realities. He knew the, the contrasts that Solomon identifies here. Jesus, For Jesus, there was a time to be born. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. There's a time to be born, and there was a time to die. Matthew 26 and 45, before his death, Jesus said, listen, he said, The hour is at hand. Jesus was well aware of the realities of time when it came to birth and death. For Jesus, there is often a time to mourn. He was known. He was called the man of sorrows. And we think of him outside the tomb of Lazarus where we read that he wept or standing over the city of Jerusalem not long before he was crucified and, and weeping tears, great tears over the people of Jerusalem, God's people who were rebelling against the Lord who would not come near to him. There was a time to mourn and also there was a time to rejoice. Luke 10 and 21, we read about Jesus rejoicing with his disciples who'd returned from mission. There was times in which Jesus healed, didn't he? He healed the sick and the blind and the lame. There was a time to heal and there was a time to break down. I think of that occasion when he strode into the temple and began turning tables and driving out the merchants. For Jesus, there was a time to embrace, and we were so moved at those scenes in which we read about him embracing and being showing such kindness to the destitute, to the sinner. There was a time to embrace, but there's also times in Jesus' life when we see there was it was time to refrain from embracing. Think of the times that he rebuked the Pharisees, right? Those weren't hug-it-out sessions. There were strong words being spoken there in the life of Jesus. For Jesus, there is a time for war. I think about the spiritual warfare that he experienced then, the spiritual warfare that, that is real now. There's a time for war, and there will be a time for peace that Jesus will bring, that Jesus will usher in in the end. When you think about the person and work of Jesus Christ, we realize this whole, this whole subject of time it's a significant factor. And, and we see here in this poem, we see in this poem that the reality is, is that there is a time for everything. There's, there's, so you can expect that you're going to have good times. You, you, can be, you can expect good times in your life and you can expect bad times because there's a time for good times and there's a time for bad times. You can expect seasons of gain and you can expect seasons of loss. You can expect there will be times when you will be joyful and when you will be sorrowful. So you're not being picked on when things go badly. You can look at the person of Jesus and see that there were days in which things went badly. You're not being centered out. You're not being picked on. So uh, don't assume in the good times that the good times will keep on rolling because there's a time for everything. Are you rejoicing this week? Then rejoice this week. It's a time for that. Are you sorrowful this week? Are you in mourning? There's a time for that. There's a time for everything. So here's his reflection. He sets up all these contrasts, and then he raises this question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from all his toil. In other words, what are we left with in the end? 
given this, this poem here that the birds ripped off on me, but fair enough. Here it is. There's a time for all these things. Now, what's the sum of it all? What's, what's the profit? Like, let's turn this poem into a math equation. And what are we left with in the end? If this is a math equation, you mathematicians, what comes after the equals at the end of this poem? What number? The answer is zero. Did you notice that? Did you notice? Each of these things, they contrast each other and they kind of cancel each other out. For example, you being born is significantly compromised by you being dead. It's like you were born, that was great, but then you're dead. And so what's, what's the, the answer to that equation? Well, it's zero. It's back to where we were. Or, or if there's a time for, for a, a breaking down and building up, it's, if it's an equation, it's, it's zero. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. There is a reality. There is a busyness in this world. But I think what he is pointing out here in his question in verse 9 is that if you add it all up, the times and seasons of life, he still comes back to this troubling issue of meaningless, vanity. What does it all add up to? Well, there's a sense in which you can say so much of life leads you down a dead-end street. Laughter is canceled out by mourning. Living is dampened by the prospects of dying. We seek and find what we seek and find in life. We feel sometimes is so often challenged by what we lose. He's kind of saying, you know what, what is the point? What is the purpose? It's a contemplation of life's activities. And what does he see? Well, I think he brings us back to a repeated theme here we see again and again throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's this. Without God, life is lacking. Without God, life is lacking. See, we notice here that, that God only shows up in verse 10. Up until verse, verse, uh, verse 9, we've got, these, the, we've got time, uh, things, a time for everything. And then we've got this question, what gain has the worker from his toil? Well, the answer, the implicit answer is it kind of all adds up to zero. Because without God... Life is lacking. Remember that under the sun perspective, when you remove God from the picture, when you remove him from your view, there is a sense in which you can look at all the events and, and realities of your life and honestly and thoughtfully think to yourself, what's the point? What is the point? In fact, some of you have thought that. Some of you maybe today are thinking that. Maybe part of the reason you're here is because you don't want to, to just come to that conclusion that there is no point. You have a sense in you that maybe there is a point, that there is hope. But it's understandable in this world of yin and yang that there is a sense in so many people. What is the point of it all? What's the use? And if God is not in the view, that can lead to despair. And to fight off the despair, we reach for all kinds of distractions, anything that, will, anything that will numb the awareness of the pointlessness of it all. We will search out after thrills and highs and releases and distractions just to get through this life. 
The reality is, friends, is that scripture is clear that without God, life is lacking. We can be left asking ourselves, what's the point? What's the purpose? But wonderfully, he doesn't end there in chapter 3. In verses 11 to 15, he moves into a description of God's activities. Now remember, this is all in the course of time. So thinking about time. God is outside of time, which is astounding, hard to get our minds around. But all of his work, all of his redemptive work happens in the course of time. And in verses 11 to 15, he does some surveying, or he describes some of God's activities in the course of time. He says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Notice, this is God's gift to man. So see, God is doing things. He is giving things. I perceive, verse 14, that whatever God does endures forever. Isn't that interesting? So we've, we've got this discussion on time but yet he notes that what God does, God has an eternal capacity about him because he is eternal. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That word fear there means awe. So that we can be in awe of him. God's got a purpose. There's some of us that feel sometimes that this whole life is so pointless. But what Solomon here sees is that no, all of life has purpose. But you gotta have God in the picture to see that. Verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Isn't that an interesting statement? A contemplation of life activities without God, life is lacking. A description of God's activities. Here's, I think, the point of verses 11 to 15. God rules over everything. There's a time for everything, and in everything, in every time, in every season, God rules. God is over it. God is at work. God is acting. God is directing Everything that goes on in the course of time is under God's sovereign rule. God rules over everything. You can look at that poem from verses 2 to 8, and you can can write over it. God rules over it all. Whether we acknowledge him, whether we believe him, whether we will trust him or not, makes no difference to the fact that God rules over everything. Your perspective on God doesn't change the reality of who God is or what God does. He is God. He rules over everything. Everything that goes on in the course of time is under God's sovereign rule. Without God, we seem to gain nothing. And I think that is a significant point out of this poem. Until God enters into the picture, what do we have? We have plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus. This long math equation. Answer zero. Right back where we began. 
But God comes into the picture and his sovereign rule over all things. And all of a sudden we find that that zero isn't really a zero. But it has value because of God. Without God, we seem to gain nothing. But with God in view, we see life in a different light. Nothing is just happenstance. Nothing is just chance. People may talk about luck and talk about randomness, but the constant unfolding of events in your life and in this world is under God's providential rule. So people will say stuff happens. The Christian says, no, no, stuff just doesn't happen. There is a God who rules over all things and nothing Nothing happens beyond his permission, ordination, and providential rule. Now, I know that raises lots of questions. But I think that you will find it's much easier to cope in the reality that God is God than to stare down the hard issues in your life that you struggle to understand and determine, I'm just gonna remove God from the picture. People do that all the time. I can't, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen. I understand the pain. And I understand the question. Trying to make sense of it all. How, how, where is God in that? I understand that. Even Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing wrong with the question. But you see, it doesn't make it easier. Your life isn't better when you remove the sovereign God from your your pain. Now it's just bad luck. Stinks to be you. Bring God into the picture. I don't know why. I don't know what the purpose is. But I do know this. God is God. And he rules. Solomon here tells us four things under this banner of God ruling over everything. First, he makes all things beautiful. Do you see that in verse 11? He has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time. He makes everything beautiful. When God's not in the the picture, your life can seem like a long string of interconnected yet unrelated random set of things just happening, circumstances, just running into each other, bouncing around. But with God in the picture, there's no chance. There's nothing happenstance. There's nothing that takes place outside of his ultimate purpose. He makes all things beautiful in its time. It reminds me of Romans 8 and 28 where Paul says these very important words. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is an incredibly hopeful verse. It's not a trite response to your tragedy to say, just try not to worry about it. No, no, it's words from the Spirit of God to give you perspective and hope that there is a God who is ruling over everything, who does make all things beautiful in its time. All of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the pure, the evil, life and death, mourning and dancing, all that maybe seems random and meaningless from the under the sun perspective, when God is now in view, now becomes part of the masterpiece that God is painting. 
And you don't get to see the whole of the masterpiece until the artist has completed his work. And that will happen in the course of time. See, in time, right now, you're looking, for some of you, you're looking at a brownish-green splotch right in front of you because that's where you are in the course of time. By faith, you hope and you trust in a God who's doing something more than just putting before your view a brownish, a brown-green splotch. But there's times in which it can feel like that's all that there is. But in the course of time, in the end, you will see somehow, some way, God takes the brown, greenish splots of your life and will make that part of a masterpiece that he is painting. And though weeping may endure for the night, joy cometh in the morning when you see the completion of the work that he is doing. All of life under the rule of God. In all these things, the author tells us that he makes all things beautiful in their time. For those who love God, those who love him, you will find gain in the end. You will find that your life does not equal zero, but equals everything because you have him. For some, we may feel like all you see right now are big, daunting trees in front of you. In the course of time, you will see the forest that God is growing. You having a good week? Having a rotten week? Basking in triumph? Staggering through tragedy? God guarantees that somehow, some way, he will make it beautiful. Do you trust him? That's the question. You say, how, how could he possibly make this beautiful? Well, if he's not God, I don't like the chances of it turning out. But if he is, he makes all things beautiful. Second, Solomon, under the, this ruling of God, he makes all things beautiful. Second, he puts eternity in our hearts. Do you see that statement in, in verse 11? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think he has placed in us a longing to know and to understand and to make sense of life. We have a, we have a sense that there's something more than just merely what we see. We have a sense of eternity in our hearts. And actually... I think most people you encounter, you will perceive if you get to know them well enough that there is in all the people you know a yearning, a longing to know the transcendent, to know there's something more. We see it in our little ones, right? The, the littlest, your, your children or nieces and nephews or grandchildren, you, you see it in them. From a very early age, we ask, why? Why? Now, some, I know sometimes that's a bad attitude, rebellious, why? Why? <laughs> right? But we can acknowledge that as the little image bearers that they are, there is a need, a desire to make sense, to know, to understand. Intuitively, it's wired into us, a sense that this, this should make sense. There's something wrong if it doesn't. God has put that there. He's put that there, a longing, a yearning to make sense of it all, to see beyond just the immediate to the transcendent, to the eternal that's a desire we have in our hearts. And wonderfully, God does give us insight and shows us, he reveals to us 
so much about that which is transcendent, yet we are still limited. And I think that's what he means in the, in the last part of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts. Notice, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's a yearning to know, and praise God, there is revelation, but there still is mystery. There's still, so there's a sense in which that we have a yearning to know, and there's things that God will show us, but there's also things that we will not fully understand until the end. And even then, we'll have all eternity to make sense of it. It reminds me of a great verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God's got secrets. You okay with that? God having some secrets? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there's things that God tells us, and he tells us in his word. There's things that he tells us, but there's so many things that happen in the course of time that God does not explain. God, he explains himself in many situations, and in many situations he does not explain himself. And that's part of the reality of living in the course of time. But he's put that capacity in our hearts, that yearning, that longing to know. Listen, here's the deal. We know some things, but not all things. And I would just throw this out there, just as a pastoral equipping piece. Be careful when people in your life encounter tragedies, be very careful in what you say. Be really careful with trite explanations of tragedies. Sometimes we can very flippantly say, well, God has a plan. Well, God's in control. That's true. But be careful that you say it in full faith. We know that God is in control. Is a whole lot different than, well, God's in control. In the face of tragedy, cling to what you know. To what you know. There's so much I don't know. Why? Why this right now? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Christ has still died for me. He has still risen for me. He is still going to return from me, for me. I've still got promises. I've still got his word. I've still got the Holy Spirit in my heart. Amen. Here are the things that I know. And I know that I live for a God who rules over everything. I know that. So I cling to what I know. Amen. Don't lose yourself, loved one. And maybe counsel away from dwelling in the pit of I don't know. Cling to what we do know. We know the devil is defeated, and we know that he will be crushed in the end. We know that God will have the last word. Loved ones, lean heavy on God for what we can't make sense of. He's put eternity in your heart, but the end is for you not to know everything, but to lean on the God who does. That's the second thing. Third, under the banner of God ruling over everything, he gives capacities for enjoyment. Very briefly, notice verse 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Now that could be read a couple of different ways. It could be, well, nothing better. <laughs> Life stinks as big fat zero. Nothing better than just eat, drink, and be merry. I don't think that's the tone of the tenor. I think what he is showing here is that it is good, it's right for us to enjoy the good things that God has given. He's given us capacities to enjoy. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. 
This is God's gift to man. God has given you capacities for enjoyment, the ability to rejoice in times of rejoicing, to enjoy what is enjoyable in its time. He's given you appetites to eat and drink in the times that you have it and the ability to see and experience good in your labors in its time. It's really easy to be bitter when things go bad. But are we rejoicing when things go good? Because I find that sometimes the intensity of our emotions toward God are really high when things are not going the way we feel they should. And we could say, hey, fair enough. We're hurting and we're, we're crying out to God. Fair enough. But, but what about that time you spent with your friends on Friday? What about the trip to the beach? What about the time at the fireworks? What, what about, about walking hand in hand with your granddaughter? What, what about that family gathering? What, what about the cool breeze you enjoyed this morning when you stepped outside? Or what about the warm sunshine that's shining on you? Do you deserve any of that? Do you deserve any of that? And yet God gives it to you. So, so it's fine. Okay, fair enough to be upset and angry and, and when, when the hard times come. We've got questions for God. Okay, fair, fair enough. But what about in the good times? Does the intensity of your, your bitterness and anger and sorrow toward God match up with your joy and gladness and thanksgiving for the good things he gives you? You see? He's given you capacities for enjoyment. So don't overlook the good things that he has given you. And I would say, dear Christian, many of us sometimes we fear indulgence, and that is a, that's a legitimate fear. We can be overindulgent in things. But some of us have come up in a background maybe where we have been afraid to enjoy the good things that God has given to us. And I don't think that's biblical either. I think that God has given us things to enjoy that it's good and right for us to enjoy because he's given us those capacities. Remember last week, you make them ultimate things, you're going down the wrong world. But in those things, that's where we experience his goodness. He's given us capacities for enjoyment in the course of time. Fourthly, he acts sovereignly. He acts sovereignly. I tried to find a poetic way to say that, but just there it is. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Who can do that? There ain't anything you and I can make, build, create, leave behind that'll last forever. But God can do that. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that, notice, people will fear before him. Why does God work in the world the way he does? One of the reasons is to cultivate awe in us before him. In the end, all the random, crazy seemingly random, catastrophic things in my life will be seen for what they are. A part of God's masterpiece designed to reveal to me the glory of his wisdom, the greatness of his love, the awesomeness of his faithfulness, his unparalleled power. It caused me to joyfully exclaim in the end, you do all things well. He acts Sovereignly. Everything is time-bound in this world. Everything that happens in the course of time, though, is under the rule of God, who makes all things beautiful in its time, has put eternity in our hearts, gives to us capacities for enjoyment. He acts in all things sovereignly. God rules over time and all that happens within it. God rules over everything. 
Does that land on you as good news? I have three responses this morning. When you think about the subject of time and God ruling over it all. Number one, I want to call on you to trust God's timing for your life. Trust God's timing. This is not easy to do. Because we often have our own sense of timing. And some of you have been in the faith long enough, you know that you've seen it. Your sense of timing and God's sense of timing are often not the same. I think an implicit challenge from this text, when you look at the rule of God over everything in the course of time, is for us to trust his timing, especially in our lives. It's understandable and natural for you even today to be saying, why me? Why this? Why now? It's understandable. But part of living by faith is believing that God is good. God is faithful and God is able. And even when I struggle to see it, he is always right on time. Always. I love how the psalmist puts it. Psalm 34, verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Now that jumps out at me. At all times. All times? I'll bless the Lord all times? When I'm laid off? When illness comes our way? When a deal I thought was in place goes sideways? When the weather is rotten? I have a hard time with Psalm 34, 1 in February. I do. And I've overheard myself grumbling, walking the dog down the street, and the, you, know the, you know that cold wind just cutting right? It doesn't matter how many layers you put on, it's just cutting right through you. And uh, uh, I have a hard time blessing the Lord <clears throat> in that. But I love how the psalmist puts it. I will bless the Lord at all times, whatever the season. Now that is a statement of faith in God and in his timing Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand. Are you waiting for something right now? Are you struggling? Are you questioning? Trust him. Trust him in his timing. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a really profound situation. Long story short, a man and a woman in their later years he a widower, she a widow. She had been very seriously seeking the Lord that in his timing and in his wisdom that he would provide for her a husband. In fact, she told me that. Actually, she, she came to me one day and said, I want you to help me find a husband. Now I know she's not, she's not, she's not messing around. And I knew what she was asking me to partner with her in prayer, and to be on the lookout for a godly man. No problem. Oh, by the way, that's happened more than once in my life. I took it as an honor that she would share that with me, and so we prayed. There's another man that I would know, and I knew, and I was getting to know, a widower, and I was spending some time with him, and I'll never forget one night, I was getting ready for bed, and I said to Leanne, do you know who would be perfect for this woman? And I said the man's name. And she turned around. Here's, here's the moment when I know I've hit something. She stops what she's doing. She turns and looks at me and she's like, yes. 
Yes. I'm not going to take too much credit, and he, he, he often wants to, to, to shield me from gaining too much credit from it, and, and that's fine, it's fair, it's, it's funny, we kind of have fun with it together. But in the course of time, I introduced them to each other, <clears throat> and then just got out of the way, and watched as they developed a friendship, and clearly developed more than just a friendship, a romantic interest in one another. Now, here's the thing. Godly man, godly woman. What are they doing as they contemplate a huge life decision? Young people, learn from this, learn from this, learn from this. They are seeking the Lord and praying for his guidance and his timing. <clears throat> he, comes, he gets up the, the nerve finally to say, I'm gonna ask her for a hand in marriage. And so what does he do? A godly man, he opens up his Bible and he reads to her a passage, and as he's reading from the passage, she begins to cry, and he's thinking to himself, uh-oh, uh-oh, this, this ain't going the way I was hoping it would go. But it wasn't tears of sadness or regret or, oh, we've got this all wrong. No, quite the opposite. You see, some time prior, she also had been seeking the Lord, and she read a passage of scripture. She read Genesis 24, and she was reading the story of Isaac and Rebekah and how the, the servant went out to find a wife for his master's son. And this calling together this man and this woman. And he says, he makes, uses this line, you know, I being in the way of the Lord, they're out here searching for the, uh, as a servant of the Lord. And he's like, this is for him, for, for her. She's reading this. And sorry, the end of the chapter, it says, will you go with this man? Okay, so will you go with this man? I almost screwed up the story there. Anyway, will you go with this man? So she reads that passage and she prays. Listen, she prays. She says, Lord, if you want me to marry him, then please, sometime soon, let me hear this passage of scripture somewhere, anywhere. In a sermon, on the radio, somebody just reading it to me. I want to hear this, but when I hear this passage of scripture read, I will know that you want me to move forward, that it's time. So fast forward to this night. This dear brother, he's reading this passage of scripture, she's crying, but she wasn't crying because she was like, we've got this all wrong. She was crying because he was reading Genesis 24. He's thinking to himself about a part of the scripture where the, the servant says, I being in the way of the Lord, you know, I'm here seeking to serve the Lord. And he was kind of thinking of a, a biblical way into proposing to her. I just love the Bible, all over the proposal. I love it. And uh, so he's thinking that, but she's thinking, this is exactly what I asked the Lord to do. And he stopped and like, have I, have I said something that, <laughs> like I, I got, should we, just, should we just go out for ice cream? Like, like what? And she's like, no, no. And she told him, I prayed and right now the Lord has answered. What's the application? Trust God's timing. Sometimes in the waiting, we're tempted to act unfaithfully because we're not cool with God's timing. Trust his timing, too. Make good use of the time you're given. Make good use of the time you're given. There, you only have so many seconds of time you're going to be given, precious seconds. Only so many minutes, oh, many so, only so many hours. There's no overtime in your life. No matter how you spend your time, you won't get it back. 
That's why Paul says, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so how do I do that? Well, I need to get busy in God-honoring ways. We need to pray for God's wisdom. God, give me wisdom in how I use my time to seek after his wisdom, to pray for self-control, to pray for discipline, to pray that God would use me as a vessel, a useful tool in his hands. Make good use of the time you're given. Are you making good use of the time you're given? Third, finally, know that, know that one day, one day your time will run out. One day your time will run out. Every day of your life, you're given 86,400 seconds of time, but one day, God will cease making those deposits into your account, and the final buzzer will go. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's a very serious time, and it's a time that's coming. Salvation is a matter of urgency. It's time-sensitive. That's why Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why now? Because you've got now. And every now that you have, you have less nows coming. So ask yourself this question. Do, do, you, do you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time that if you haven't already to get things right with God and to fly to Jesus because when time's, uh, time runs out, you will enter into a different sphere of time called eternity. And in that day, the decisions you've made now in this life will count like never before. How you've treated Jesus will be reflective of how he will treat you. You accept Jesus, he will accept you. You reject Jesus, he will reject you. Know that one day, one day your time will run out. So I would plead with you today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time because you have it. Trust in God's timing for your life. Make good use of the time you're given. Know that one day your time will run out. Let's pray together.